Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, and we're here for the second installment of our Madonna series. I'm so, so excited for you guys to hear this episode. I can't wait. First off, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you listen to your podcasts. Ratings and reviewings really help us get in front of more people, especially on Apple Podcasts. And for the foreseeable future, we're going to run a contest where we're going to read all the new reviews on Apple Podcasts for the month, pick our favorite, and our favorite will be read on air, and you will receive the winner of that contest, a Niche Legend Dad Hat. So get on there, give us five stars. Nobody who doesn't give us five stars has entered in the contest. And thank you so much for rating and reviewing the show. And please follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L O U I E X I V on both Twitter and Instagram. Check out the Spotify playlist for this and every episode in the show notes of the episode. And hey, I actually wanted to throw something out there, which I have mentioned on the show before, but my party, Gorgeous Gorgeous, is coming up in Los Angeles this weekend. It's tomorrow, Friday, January 13th at resident in downtown Los Angeles. Tickets are available in the show notes of the episode. I will post them on social media. They're available in my bios on social media. If you're a member of our Patreon, Pop Pantheon All Access at the Icon tier, you get guests listed for the party. Please DM me on Patreon if you want to be included in that. That's the way to get on the guest list. DM on Patreon. You can get a plus one for that as well. This is a queer pop party in case anybody didn't know in LA. I DJ. I throw it with my friends. So I hope to see some of you there. Queers, allies, people who love pop, you're all welcome. So hoping to see a bunch of you tomorrow night at Gorgeous Gorgeous. But I also want to say I am available to hire to DJ. If you are having a wedding, an event, you work for a brand, whatever it is, you work at a club, I don't know who's listening to this podcast, hire me. Let's talk. I am a vet. I'm a pop music fanatic in there as I am on here. And I would love to work with you. So get at me. You can email me at louis at louisxiv.com, L-O-U-I-E at L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V.com or DM me on social, whatever. Let's talk. Just want to put that out there. All right, so this week's episode is the second part of our three-part Madonna series. Actually, technically four parts because we are going to republish our earlier episode on her latter work later in the month, but three new episodes on Madonna. Last week, we talked about the beginnings of her career. We talked about her first three records. This week, we're getting into a really meaty time in Madonna's discography and legacy and everything else. This is going to pick up with 1989's seminal Like a Prayer. We're going to talk about Vogue. We're going to talk about the Blonde Ambition Tour. We're going to talk about Truth or Dare. We're going to talk about Erotica and the Sex Book and Bedtime Story. So some of the biggest moments in her career, some of the most controversial moments in her career, some of the moments that really defined the trajectory of pop stardom for many other folks moving forward. Really a trailblazing time, a really exciting moment, and I can't get over how well this episode turned out. So I am so excited for you guys to hear it. So without further ado, here is Madonna part two.
Following the release of True Blue, which itself sold 25 million copies worldwide and spun off three number one hits and five top fives, Madonna was on a truly explosive run. In just a few short years, she'd established herself as one of the preeminent new pop stars of the 1980s, knocking out a continuous stream of decade-defining albums and singles of notably expanding ambition, depth, and skill, placing herself at the vanguard of the now culture-defining music video format, weaponizing controversy to her advantage like very few pop culture figures had before, and beginning to establish herself as the queen of reinvention, able to cannily morph with the times and set the tone for what was coming next in mainstream pop. What she didn't quite have yet, though, was cred. But in classic Madonna form, especially in this imperial period of her career, when people underestimated the scope of her prowess, artistic or otherwise, she made sure to prove them wrong. Madonna's fourth album was 1989's Like a Prayer, a record that sought to answer once and for all the question of whether Madonna was just a shiny pop bobble or a serious artist, able to turn her pop music into true revelation, both aesthetically and thematically, without losing her commercial stranglehold. To achieve this, she turned once again to her true blue collaborators, Patrick Leonard and Stephen Bray, but sought to make a record that told her story and built out her mythology. She took on her childhood, specifically her mother's death and her resentment towards her father's remarriage on sweeping moving ballads promised to try and owe father. She addressed directly the abuse, emotional and perhaps physical, of her volatile and recently dissolved marriage to actor Sean Penn on Till Death Do Us Part, and mourned the friends she was losing to the AIDS crisis on Pray for Spanish Eyes. Sonically, too, she widened her scope considerably, collaborating with Prince on the simmering, sweaty, and spare love song, and exploring Yellow Submarine-era Beatles psychedelia on Dear Jesse. All of this amounted to one of the definitive pop auteur statements of the 1980s, punctuated by a slew of the century's greatest hits. The doo-wop nodding love song Cherish and pop's definitive girl power anthem Express Yourself, both of which hit number two, as well as the album's number one peaking title track, an epic gospel-inflected dance pop rock roof raiser that, in classic Madonna fashion, gloriously walks the line between the sacred and the profane and stands today as perhaps her signature song in a career full of them. During this period of nearly endless peaks, Madonna also never lost sight of how important it was to her personal brand to keep pissing people off. Her extraordinarily divisive video for Like a Prayer featured burning crosses, the superstar having a romantic dalliance with a black Jesus figure, and got her lucrative deal with Pepsi canceled. Her juggernaut live spectacle, The Blonde Ambition Tour, was under constant scrutiny for its sexually explicit sequences by everyone from the news media to various police departments to the Vatican, who tried to get the Rome tour stop canceled. The seminal documentary which chronicled this tour, Truth or Dare, presented M as somehow both a petulant narcissist and an absolutely transcendent, utterly captivating supernova, the absolute zenith and nadir of the modern pop cultural landscape. But most importantly, all of it seemed only to up her dominance. She capped off this era, perhaps the single most successful three-year run in pop history this side of Thriller, by thrusting herself out of the 1980s and right into a new decade with another legacy codifying moment, her smash hit Vogue, which ditched all the previous decade's trappings in favor of the newly bubbling house music scene and actively either elevated or cribbed, depending on how you look at it, underground black and Latino queer ball room culture to sublime effect. 
Vogue, both the record and the classic David Fincher-directed video, complete with the legendary choreography, notable dancers from New York's ballroom scene, and the Jean-Paul Gaultier outfits, constitutes one of commercial pop music's finest moments. But where Madonna's instincts to balance the avant-garde and the mainstream, the centrist and the contentious, had worked like a finely calibrated tool to this point, her next move, the one-two punch of her fifth album, 1992's Lightning Rod Erotica, and its accompanying coffee table book, Sex, represented perhaps her first true miscalculation, if just in a commercial sense. The book featured pictures largely by famed photographer Stephen Mizell of Madonna and others fully nude and engaging in boundary-pushing sexual scenarios, including BDSM and queer sex, all against the backdrop of the AIDS epidemic, and was instantly derided as vulgar and pegged as, quote, going too far by everyone from MTV to Tipper Gore. In a way, the controversy of the book subsumed erotica, a much less commercially-minded concept record about sex and romance that saw Madonna and Vogue collaborator Shep Pettibone, along with Andre Betts, delving further into house and hip-hop styles that would define the early and mid-90s, and featuring some of Madonna's most complex, thorny, and fascinating music to date. On the heels of sex, erotica, though well-received by critics, sold a mere fraction of what Like a Prayer had three years earlier, seen as the first real stumble of her career, but did manage to spin off a couple of top tens, including the number three peaking title track and the number seven peaking swirling disco house banger Deeper and Deeper. Erotica and the impending fallout from the sex book created a major tide shift in Madonna's relationship to the public. Many of the traits that had been her commercial calling card to that point, her ability to push people's buttons, grab attention in headlines, all in the guise of extraordinarily finely crafted accessible pop hits, seemed to turn on her during this moment. Unfairly deemed out of touch with centrist pop and falling back on sex as a means of keeping herself relevant, Madonna, ever the savvy cultural tea leaf reader, spent the better part of the mid-90s pivoting to a less combative stance while, true to form, never fully apologizing. Following Erotica, she scored a number two hit with the Lucy I'll Remember, her most straightforward ballad in years that could almost be classified as adult contemporary, miles away from the explicit sex and house and hip-hop that defined the previous album. She followed that up with her next proper release, 1994's Bedtime Stories, a singular record in Madonna's discography which found her, for the first time since Niall Rogers on Like a Virgin, teaming up with established hitmakers like Dallas Austin, Dave Hall, and Nellie Hooper to craft a song softer and more mainstream conversant R&B record. Bedtime Stories didn't fully ditch the sex-forward material of erotica, but it presented it in the context of luscious mid-90s R&B in the style of newly emergent, mostly black stars of the genre like Brandy, TLC, Aaliyah, and Mary J. Blige. The record also began to incorporate themes that would emerge more fully formed on Madonna's late 90s third wave records like Ray of Light, with the star in a self-reflective mode, reassessing past guises and attitudes and expressing hard-won wisdom about life, fame, and success. Bedtime Stories also put Madonna in an interesting position. It both righted the ship with a series of well-performing singles, like the slinky lead Secret, but also seemed to be the first time where she was operating as a mere working stiff pop star, living hit to hit, working trends instead of setting them, and presenting questions about whether she would ever again be able to fully dominate culture in the innovative way she had done during the 80s. This dichotomy is no clearer encapsulated than in the album's biggest smash, the babyface penned Take a Bow, a down-the-middle, lush and edgeless ballad that became her longest running number one single ever. I've always been in love with you. I guess you've always known it's true. 
Madonna capped off this period of pivoting back towards the middle by starring famously in the adaptation of Andrew Lloyd Webber's hit musical, Evita. And as she entered the second half of the 1990s, she was still certainly one of the biggest and most important pop stars to have ever operated in the space. And frankly, if she had never released anything again, we'd still be thinking of her in that way. But as it turns out, she still had a few more thrilling tricks up her sleeve to come. Here with me to discuss a period of Madonna's career that scaled her highest highs, some of her lowest lows, and contains pound for pound quite a bit of her best music and most memorable pop cultural touchstones is chair of the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music, Jason King. Okay, so I am here once again with the chair of the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music, Jason King. Jason, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be back. Our disco episode is a fan favorite. I literally cannot tell you how much incredible feedback I got on that episode. We're here today to talk about a person that arose from the ashes of disco in some senses. Maybe that's the connection. Madonna. And I've been obviously deep in a hole with her for the last few weeks prepping for this. We're doing three episodes on her because obviously there's a lot of ground to cover. And there's a lot of ground to cover in each episode in and of itself. I think this is a really intriguing era for her because I was sort of laying out in the last episode that we see her as the blueprint for modern pop stardom, right? Like so many ideas or conceptions that we have of what a pop star is, how their career is supposed to progress, the choices they're supposed to make, how they're meant to evolve, the idea of reinvention, all traces back to her. And of course, when something becomes that iconic, we sort of lose what actually happened in the mix. Like in our Discord chat, for instance, when people talk about her, like when younger fans talk about her, they sort of know that she's the queen of pop and know that she's the blueprint. But I've had a lot of people say to me, like, I don't totally like see the innovations or see what exactly she was doing because it feels so de rigueur at this point. It's such a fact of life that it's hard to know. So that's part of what I'm hoping that we can do today. And what we were sort of discussing in episode one, and I think this is a good era for us to dig into some of this a little bit further, is for her, it all felt like it was just kind of a result of her really finely tuned instincts about what she needed to do next, what people wanted from her next, and perhaps how to advance the pop conversation or the mainstream pop conversation from like a place of pure instinct because she wasn't exactly following a blueprint. But I think this era, and I'd be curious to hear your take on that, is a moment where that both reached its apex and also where perhaps she for the first time began to have a little bit of calibration issues in terms of how far to push it and how much the public was ready for what her instincts were telling her to do artistically. That's really well put. You know, I think of this whole era as her imperial period. And usually that's the phrase that people use, right, to refer to that moment when it seems like the pop star can do no wrong and everything they do knocks it out of the park. It's also a corporate pop moment for her in a different way. So the alignment with brands like Pepsi, Warner Brothers, she's doing a massive film like Dick Tracy. But it's also an era in which she clearly stands alone. I mean, when I was growing up, and I was a massive Madonna fan, by the way, I can't even tell you how <laughs> how, how much of a fan I was. You know, but there was this debate when she started around 1984-85, like who's going to be bigger, Cyndi Lauper or Madonna, right? And I think this is the period where that's not even a question anymore. I mean, I think that's even the case as of like 87. Right. But it's her, it's Michael Jackson, it's Whitney Houston. She's in this rarefied 
heir, this kind of echelon of pop superstardom. And it's a really amazing moment. And she feels ubiquitous. She's everywhere. And she is dominating culture. It's not just dominating the music industry or dominating the charts, but she's literally dominating culture. And I think maybe the only current equivalent of that would be somebody like Beyonce today, that when Beyonce releases something, it just feels like she's taking over the culture. It's like you have to weigh in. You have to have an opinion about it. You have to listen to it because it's everywhere. It just feels omnipresent. And that's what Madonna felt like in this era to me. The parallel is very instructive, I think, because one, Beyonce shares Madonna's intuitive sense of where to expand the scope of her artistry and career next in a way that keeps people intrigued. And a lot of that comes from a deepening of her artistry, which is something that I think Madonna's career as a move to move to move thing can be threaded in that way. It's like every project had to be something that expanded the idea of who she was, what she could do just far enough so that people still felt they were retaining the essence of what they liked about her, but still felt like she continued to be interested which is something that most pop stars really, really, really struggle with. I mean, we will have just put episodes out on Katy Perry when this airs and is a great example of someone that has attempted and been unable to really like calibrate that particularly right. But that, I think, is both Madonna and Beyonce's the source of their ability to stay interesting and stay relevant is that instinct, that intuition, that sense of how to do that right. And the 360 degree version of pop stardom that Madonna really pioneered and that Beyonce has sort of taken the baton from her on is the idea that pop stardom is not just about having great songs or even being a great performer. It's about providing a vision for your stardom and for your work that is multifaceted, multimedia, visual, all of those ideas. And I think those are both ideas that reach at least one zenith of multiple for Madonna during this period. And also where she makes some of her more interesting and divisive artistic choices that are fun to pick apart in that context as well. So I'm really, really, really excited about this. And not to mention, I too am an adoring Madonna fan. And I have this weird thing with her, like where when I do these deep dives, she kind of like intoxicates and takes over my whole life in this really weird way. Like when I watch Truth or Dare, for instance, like I can't explain it. She's so petulant. She's so irritating. She's such a bitch throughout so much of it. But yet at the same time, she is like the most magnetic force, the most organizing, crazy, appealing, X-factory thing I've maybe ever seen a pop star be. You can just sense how much like everyone in her orbit both finds her so kind of self-centered and bitchy and all these things and yet like cannot stay away from her, like wants to be in her orbit for as long as possible. And I experienced that too with her in this particular era most pertinently. Yeah, I mean, I think you said it really well. And that's the thing that's hard for younger people to understand or know about Madonna. So besides being one of the greatest pop stars of all time, incredible songwriter and performer and mixing low culture and high culture and the avant-garde and pop culture and everything else, she is someone who brought this incredible energy mm. into popular music. And so I think of her as being this figure who embody the kind of transgressive energy she was so alpha and it's just like all it and just like 
the kind of chutzpah and confidence, which in some ways stood in for our kind of raw natural talent. Everybody exactly. knew this was not Aretha Franklin, right? This was not Aretha. <laughs> this was not. Nobody was expecting her to be either, right? But what she did coming up after Pat Benatar and Irene Cara, God rest her soul, and all of these other figures, even even Donna Summer and all these other figures, is she sort of brought together this incredible energy, which had a lot to do also with downtown New York of the early 1980s, the Andy Warhols, the Basquiat's, and Danceteria, and the Mud Club, and all of that stuff that was happening. Yes. Alvin Ailey, she organized it all, synthesized it all, and then like put that back out to us in this incredibly transgressive way. And she really defines the idea of the pop star as someone who wields controversy, right, in order to up sales. And I think that's one of the things that also distinguishes her from a lot of other artists. There's certainly a lot of controversial artists from Alice Cooper to whoever else, Mm -hmm. but no one did it like Madonna did, right? And she really defines the 1980s as this sort of new era where pop culture itself is the battleground for cultural debate, right? It's Mm. the place in which you debate about feminism, you debate about race, you debate about all of these things through the lens of popular culture. So we might not have had debates about feminism per se in the 1980s, but we had them through Madonna, right? In discussing Papa Don't Preach and discussing Like a Prayer and discussing all of these songs. That's how we talked about the changing role of women and sexism and patriarchy in the media. It was through Madonna and the example that she gave, this sort of tough, ambitious, confident, alpha woman, sexually voracious, unafraid to attack the establishment, go after the Vatican, the Pope. Like, she was just, like, not a victim in any way, shape, or form. No, no. (laughs) It was so powerful. Again, I think that's what's hard for people to understand about Madonna and about this era in particular, because it wasn't just that she dominated the charts, it's that she was a dominating figure culturally. Like, she was, you could feel the culture shift through your engagement with Madonna and watching the videos and listening to the music and seeing the way that she moved through the world. She moved through the world with this authority, this confidence, this openness that was incredibly powerful and it was instructive to a lot of people. And she made pop music mean something more than it ever had before, in a sense. Like, she helped give it that meaning. She was one of a number of artists in this period that expanded what pop music could be and do. I think the other thing I should put a pin in, and we can come back to this, and I know we both want to discuss this you've named a lot of black artists on which she was drawing quite a bit from and that's another element of this era that i think will be interesting to parse apart is the ideas of where the line between her elevating certain underground black art forms into a wider mainstream crossed over into some sort of exploitative thing and i know that that's something that is a thread throughout her entire career but is very very present in these three albums in particular in many ways. So I'll be interested to return to that with you. My first question is, broadly speaking, coming off of the 1980s, Madonna, Like a Virgin, and then specifically True Blue being kind of the record that I think essentially like launched her into the stratosphere and put her kind of above the fray. What do you think coming into the Like a Prayer era, coming into 1989, that she still had to prove? Because I think one thing about Madonna is that she's constantly trying to prove doubters wrong about her. I think that's a huge source of inspiration and fuel for a lot of her choices and her career is constantly people saying you're this and she's going actually I'm not that oh you can't do this oh yes I can do that so what do you think at this particular moment what did you think she still had to prove coming into this era look we're talking about the end of the 1980s 1988 1989 she's already considered one of the greatest entertainers ever 
She's already, you know, one of the top selling artists of not only the decade, but ever. So she's already like in that stratosphere. Mm -hmm. But I think the issue is that she's not seen, certainly by critics, and I would say also by a lot of people in her audience, as more than really an entertainer. She's not really considered an artist and definitely not considered an auteur. It's interesting on True Blue that she has co-production credit, but nobody thinks of her as a producer and nobody thinks of her as being solely kind of in control of her career, in part because of the double standard of how women are treated in the music industry, that even if a woman does co-produce, and even if she is in the studio, and even if she is directing the way that she wants her music to sound, usually the man in the room is the one who gets the credit, and I think that was the case for Madonna as well. So she wasn't really taken seriously despite the sales and despite how controversial and provocative a figure that she was. And I think part of the reason for that also is in popular music, we tend to equate a confessional Mm singer-songwriter-ism with authenticity and with substance and with depth. So Bob Dylan is automatically, for many, seen as more authentic than, let's say, Britney Spears. (laughs) I hate to use those examples, but, you know, that's the kind of... Where's the duet? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they might have one, actually. But that's, uh, you know, what they'd call rockism, right? right. Uh, you know, basically this idea that in order to be taken seriously as an artist, you have to write your own material, you have to produce your own material, and you have to demonstrate that, right, in a really kind of public way. Mm-hmm. So I think at this stage in Madonna's work, despite all the great songs, there's not that much that's confessional or personal about her work or even introspective. You don't really learn about Madonna, the person, per se, from any of the previous albums. And I think that was part of it. The other thing I would say about this era is that she, besides the incredible music, which just seemed to keep hitting and it kept dominating the charts, her film career was terrible. So she had, you know, (laughs) it was just awful. So, you know, it was like, what's happening? Shanghai Surprise in 86. I mean, she won like the Raspberry, like the worst actress award, right, in like 86. Sean Penn. See, you have quite a following, Mr. Wazy. Madonna. You deceitful, jelly-spined, backstabbing bat... Shanghai Surprise. And then she was on Broadway in Speed the Plow. That got major headlines, but she was not considered necessarily good actress in it. People were like, she's not horrible, but she's not really good either. And I, I know that must have caused her a lot of personal pain and drama. And let's not also forget 1987, Who's That Girl, which was just absolutely abominable, right? So yes. like the only good film she'd made in her whole life really had been Desperately Seeking Susan, which, by the way, I asked my mother to take me to in 1984, five, whenever that was released. And my mother said, that is way too mature for you. So... <laughs> But that was the only <laughs> that was the only film that gave her any credibility. And you know, she also had a failed marriage too, right? So she had filed for a divorce from right. Sean Penn in like I think 87. So she was going through a lot personally, but none of that really had showed up in the music at all. And so I think that's part of the reason that she was not considered a serious artist or serious auteur in music. And I think Like a Prayer changed all that. Do you feel like it would be a fair characterization to say that perhaps her ambition for this record was A to do exactly what you're saying, which is to open up, become more confessional, and also help mythologize her story. I mean, that was one thing that I was thinking about listening to this record is like, there's so much mythology surrounding Madonna, the story of her mother dying, the story of her thorny relationship with her father, obviously a lot of the playing around with ideas of Catholicism, and they're almost like American folklore at this point. 
thinking about her story. If the goal was to go deeper, if the goal was to be more self-revelatory, I feel like that was the approach that she was taking to this. Like story of the breakup of the marriage, story of the relationship with the parents, and then helping to get chewy with the Catholicism. That was the vision for this as far as I can understand. Do you think that's a fair characterization? Yeah, I think you should think of each of Madonna's successive albums as branding exercises. Right. <laughs> and th this was no different. And I think here was an opportunity to get people to understand really who she was beyond being a pop culture fixture or caricature, that she was actually somebody who thought about the world with depth and introspection and that there was an actual figure there that people needed to learn about beyond the headlines, the divorce and the failed movies and all those kinds of things. Like, here's somebody who actually has a story to tell. And I think that's also important to think about what else was happening in the culture at the time. Like, she herself had carved space in the 1980s for a whole slate of more ambitious women musicians to make musical statements. So Janet, that first album, Control, comes out, right? And not only after Michael Jackson's huge success with Thriller, but also after Madonna's success, right? And so Janet is making a personal statement with Control in the context of state-of-the-art dance music. And so there's room suddenly for someone like Madonna to do the same. But you also think of the other space that she made for women like Jodie Watley, Paula Abdul, and so on. And there's an opportunity there for her to distinguish herself from the pack by going deeper essentially. Instead of just making the music that now everybody else is making because she opened the space for them to make it, why not now tell a different story about herself? And I think that's what she wanted to do. The other thing I'd say about Like a Prayer is that the lead single itself is this anthemic, inspirational tune. And you know, the late 80s was all about self-help. This was the era of self-help, the rise of the Oprah Winfrey show. You've tried every new drug and therapy and still can't get any relief from the disease or affliction you have, but did you ever think relief could be right inside your own mind? Michael Jackson doing Man in the Mirror. There's no Man in the Mirror type inspirational song on Thriller. Whitney Houston really kicks that off, I think, with The Greatest Love of All. So everybody's got to have their inspirational moments. And so Madonna really doesn't have any on True Blue, per se, that I would call big pop personal inspirational anthems. So those tracks then become her opportunity to absorb the zeitgeist, this time in which everybody's moving into self-help and inspiration. It's happening on talk shows, on TV, but it's happening in music as well. And she's able to do it, I think, in a way that also curiously connects to her ability to push the envelope and court controversy. Like a Prayer is both controversial and inspirational at the same time, which is not an easy thing to do. No one ever said NWA was like inspirational, right? <laughs> when they're courting controversy. But like Madonna, she's finding a way to do both things at the same time. And of course, it's also the era of the Parents Music Resource Center and right. all of the lobbying of, about Tipper like Gore. explicit warnings, Tipper Gore and all that stuff and mm -hmm. warnings on albums and all of that. So this is a really interesting time for her to go personal, but also to make it anthemic, universal, and to make it controversial in ways that connect back to her earlier work too. There has to be a connection between Like a Virgin and Like a Prayer, obviously, right? That's her moment of controversy in 1984, and then here she is building on that controversy, returning to it in almost a nostalgic way, but an updated state-of-the-art way with Like a Prayer. Life is a mystery. Everyone must stand alone. I hear you call. 
I'm curious, A, to talk about like the aesthetic of it and like how she's advancing with Bray and Leonard on this record. The scope of her sound is one thing, but also I think another thing that perhaps connects this to Like a Virgin and also connects it to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the way that she's able to court controversy and add layers to her music by not just having it be just about the music, but having it be about, like with this song, the music video, which is incredibly important here, and all of the sort of subtext that she's able to add to these songs that aren't necessarily there on the surface. Like we were saying in the last episode, Like a Virgin is so fascinating because if you just pick apart the song, right? Like the lyrics and whatever, it's just a song about falling in love with somebody and then making you feel like it was the first time. You know what I mean? But there's so much more irony and cheekiness and layers that are added to it in the way she performs the song, in the VMA's performance, in the video. All of it is there in the extra musical element of it. Do you feel like that operates here on some level? Like, is Like a Prayer in and of itself a song that is dealing with all of this layers of controversy and provocations? Or is that something that occurs because of the way that she's able to take what's happening in the song and flesh it out in all of these other ways? Oh, well, first of all, it's clearly (laughs) an attempt to create a song that has dual meaning. Right. (laughs) And I actually think a lot of that comes from her work with Nile Rodgers, because I think Nile, you know, who produced the Like a Virgin album and that song and everything, he's someone who specialized in that, in his work with Chic in the disco era, right? He could write these anthems, inspirational anthems, that could be read in different ways. They were what you'd consider polysemic. We Are Family could be a song about sisterhood, sung by Sister Sledge, or it could be about the LGBT community. I'm Coming Out, Diana Ross, which he also worked on. It could literally be about coming out or it could be about just like anybody having a good time. And even to this day, 40 years later, those songs are still read differently by different audiences and people can take what they want out of them. That's a very masterful style of songwriting, right? To be able to write a song that can be read in different ways, just the way you were talking about Like a Virgin. I mean, to me in 84, I only read Like a Virgin one way (laughs) and I think my mother did as well. And she she was quite clear about what that meant and that, you know, we shouldn't be listening to it but <laughs> um <laughs> but like a prayer is the same kind of thing i think it's inspirational dance pop rock anthem because of the rock guitars in there played by prince yes the guitar in the front is prince But this song is really about a woman's relationship to God, right? And so she's testifying about her closeness and intimacy with God. But clearly you could also read it as her talking about a male lover, right? And her intimacy with a male lover. So when she says things like, when you call my name, it's like a little prayer. I'm down on my knees. I want to take you there. I mean, that line, I'm down on my knees. I want to take you there. So she's praying, right? She's genuflecting to God, but she could also be doing fellatio. Right. And people read it both ways. And when they were recording in the studio, Patrick Leonard, who worked on the song with her, was like, I don't really like that lyric. I think it's really towing the line in an uncomfortable way. And she's like, keep it in, keep it in. So I think it was deliberate that this was a song that was going to be about spiritual connection with God, but it could also be about a carnal connection with your lover. And it was both things at the same time. And that's part of the power of the track itself. That's what literally empowers it, I think. I'm so interested also if we are going to read into the sexual 
subtext of this song. Madonna presents her sexuality often like a top. I don't know how else to say it. Like she presents herself as a top. <laughs> and it's interesting in the context of this song to present it as a form of surrender. I don't know whether you could see it as a form of surrender to God or surrender to her sexual partner. I'm down on my knees and like a desire to sort of be in a submissive role. I think that's kind of like what the God element or the sort of mishmashing of God and a romantic lover gives this song is it's presenting Madonna's sexuality in a way that it doesn't often come across either before or after because she presents her sexuality in a very very invulnerable way a lot of times in her music like it really comes across as like she would never give her power up in that dynamic in any situation that's often how it comes across except here which is a rare moment where I don't know is her tongue-in-cheek I'm not sure it seems genuine to me that this song is about surrendering to the mystery of God or the mystery of this sexual interaction I don't really know but that's one of the things that always intrigues me about this song and makes it stand out from how she often presents herself on record in terms of her sex it's a really good point. I mean, she's definitely willing to serve right. in this song. And the question is, serve who? Right. The openness of it, it's an open-ended text. And it's an open-ended lyric. And I think that's part of the power of it. It's unfinished. And it's up to you to finish it and to figure out the meaning of it. And, you know, this was also part and parcel of a lot of pop songs of that time, too. You know, if you're talking about, like, Steve Winwood and Higher Love, like, was he talking about God or was he talking about a woman he was in love with? Like, it, it could go either way. And that's part of the power. But there's something else that's going on in the song as well, which is that just from a production standpoint, right. it's a little bit different than some of the tracks on True Blue and even anything else that she'd had before. Definitely a dance, pop, sort of rock tune with hard rock guitars. But the presence of the gospel choir, which is the Andre Crouch singers, is different than anything she had done before. And it actually, part of an 80s trope of like wheeling out the black gospel choir, you know, for the song that's inspirational. Right? <laughs> and having the black female soloist come in and take you to church at the end of it as well. You have to have that. I mean, that's Foreigner, I Want to Know What Love Is, right? That became the dominant moment where Jennifer Holliday's singing on the end of that song. Mm -hmm. Madonna is doing that here. But there's also something else, which is that the song moves between these moments of like suspended light where Madonna is just singing over organ or synth and singing plaintively in this almost like a hymnal way. And then the beat comes in and it's like a dance song that everybody can rock with. keeps moving back and forth between those two modes and I don't think she ever had a song exactly like that so part of it is the change in production and she had largely worked with Stephen Bray before of course she had worked with Patrick Leonard on True Blue but Like a Prayer doesn't sound like anything else in her catalog but it's obviously been so inspirational for so many people and it still shows up as such an important song today. Let's talk about the video because obviously we can't have a discussion about the song without talking about the video which was so controversial that it like lost her her Pepsi deal and I don't even know how to exactly describe but I watched it multiple times. There's a lot going on here. So what would you describe as happening <laughs> in the music video? And you want me to describe it. That's why I invited you on here. You're smarter <laughs> than me. I want you to tell the audience what's going on here. So this video, it was very slick at the time. We had heard Like a Prayer first because it was on the Pepsi commercial because she had signed this endorsement deal with Pepsi. So that was the first time we heard it. And so then here comes this music video. And she is somebody who knows how to wield the aesthetics of MTV like nobody <laughs> else and to use controversy to you know open up the space 
and to dominate. I just remember at the time just feeling overwhelmed by the video because it was played all the time. It was constant. It was everywhere. You were forced to listen to it, to hear about the debates and so on. But basically the debates came from the fact that in the video, which is directed by Mary Lambert, Madonna plays who she is, this young white woman who witnesses a woman being killed by a group of white men, but a black man who's played by the actor Leon Robinson in the film, he's arrested for that murder erroneously. And so she has to become a witness, but she has to develop the strength to become a witness. And so (laughs) she goes to this church, she hides, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens. She's kissing a black Jesus who comes out. The gospel choir is rolled out. There's a whole lot of stuff that's going on. And she's, of course, dressed in a very skimpy way and so on. And so all of this is happening with all this religious iconography and crosses and there's stigmata, there's burning crosses, the Ku Klux Klan. So it's a commentary on race. It's like everything's going on at the same time. And so the Vatican condemned the video. They were like, this is not going to work for us. And it led to all these cultural boycotts and Pepsi walked out of their deal with her, although she ended up apparently still keeping millions of dollars. The video was almost more important than the song itself in some ways, or at least as important, right? Because you couldn't really have a perspective just on the song unless you'd seen it with the video, like Michael Jackson's Thriller or anything else, right? It's kind of like they complement each other. But this video is happening just, I think, a year after, maybe even the same year as the film Mississippi Burning, which stars Willem Dafoe and Gene Hackman and deals with the Ku Klux Klan and racism in the South. And so a lot of the imagery seems pulled from that. So it's felt very topical. And, you know, she's diving into an area that she's never really dealt with before in her music. And so she's courting the controversy, but it's all sun and light and happiness at the end because everything's solved. She has solved racism, is what you're saying, through this music video. (laughs) She hasn't solved it, but certainly, you know, she walks (laughs) off into the sunset, let's say, with her partner. And, you know, the video is about interracial relationship, you know, and so in the context of American culture, even in the conservative Reagan 80s, interracial relationships, Christianity, religion, I mean, she's dealing with some very taboo subjects and she's bringing them to the center of American culture by way of MTV. It's interesting because it's like on the one hand, you want to celebrate that. But on the other hand, the video has an awkward feel to me of her utilizing that for her own benefit. As we said, she is a master at weaponizing controversy for her benefit. And in watching it in retrospect, I cannot help but see it in that way somehow. Like, I just find it so awkward and I wrote in my notes I wrote a little bit resistance mommy in terms of just the way that she is being like look at me I think racism is bad and I want to help be part of the solution to dismantling it and yet at the same time it's all for her personal and commercial benefit at the end of the day and she comes across looking like the good person at the end of this whole thing yeah oh absolutely we now have a phrase for it white savior right like that's what's happening in the video yeah it also fetishizes the black man in the video his skin when he comes out as a jesus when they kiss each other i mean who is this serving necessarily right and yet at the same time that is what transgression looked like and sounded like in 1989 Mm. you know now we can look back at that and it seems almost naive and i would say at the time i wasn't a huge fan of the like a prayer video a it was not only so omnipresent 
present and it felt kind of crushing because of you know MTV was playing it so regularly and you just couldn't escape it but I just preferred the song more than the video and I think in part because this was a very complicated time for race in America I mean Spike Lee do the right thing I mean there are complex statements about race being made at that time and this was not one of them <laughs> it was not <laughs> it would be difficult for this white woman to have made that statement I think in a better way than Spike Lee <laughs> for sure but she could have like partnered with or like she could have done something that would have like raised the level of complexity I, I mean, agree that's what makes it feel a little bit uncomfortable I mean, that's what makes it feel I think maybe some somewhat self-serving in retrospect more so than maybe it even registered at the moment that it was out. Sure. And the interesting thing is it's self-serving and yet it's an anthem. So it's on behalf of a larger community, right? So like right. that's the nature of anthems themselves. And it's personal in some ways, right? Given that Madonna's brand is about her transgressing past her religious upbringing and Catholicism and so on. So it almost made sense when it earned the ire of the Vatican because it's Madonna versus organized religion. right? And that's what the video is rehearsing and then that's literally what happened and so it all felt like it was of a piece at that moment but now looking back at it it does feel quite strange <laughs> but the song seems to have exceeded the video in many ways I would say oh I agree obviously this song achieves everything that she aims for with it as you mentioned imperial in the dictionary sense of the word she is bigger than ever. This song achieves the expansion of the scope of what we think of as what she can do, who she can be, what she is. She, of course, executes one of her classic reinventions in this music video as well by dyeing her hair brown for the first time. Very striking when you see that after watching the preceding eight years of how she appeared and how important being blonde seemed to all of that. When she releases the record, Like a Prayer, let's talk about the rest of the music on this album. This is a very diverse sounding album I feel like overall it's cohesive thematically as we talked about we're dealing with family we're dealing with history we're dealing with reckoning with religious ideas we're dealing with the dissolution of the marriage with Sean Penn but this record traverses many different musical styles can you talk about some of what this album is doing on both a musical and thematic front we can talk about express yourself obviously maybe we should start there as the second single and another incredibly iconic madonna song i love express yourself Me too. and i think i loved it more than like a prayer so this is a song that she and stephen bray worked on together and it's interesting because janet jackson has rhythm nation and there's a major sample on rhythm nation on the title track which is sly and the family stones thank you for letting me be myself again yes So there's this weird thing there with Janet where in, you know, as she heads into the 90s, she and her producers, Jam and Lewis, are looking back to the late 1960s, early 1970s, kind of bridging the eras. But Madonna and Stephen Bray are doing the same thing as well with Sly because I think both on Express Yourself and Keep It Together, their primary influence, like they went into the studio trying to recreate a kind of Sly aesthetic, which to me means, you know, a really powerful rhythm and groove, but also a kind of inspirational lyric thematically about being your highest self you know, almost a kind of like late 60s, almost like hippie influenced ideology. And you were talking about this as like a self-help 
era in popular culture. Totally. So it's bringing together 80s self-help with like a late 60s, early 70s, express yourself. The staple singers had respect yourself. You know, there's like all those kinds of songs of that era. And so I think that's what they're going for. And of course, tying it to Madonna's own personal brand of female empowerment. And, you know, the song is basically saying, you know, woman, you got to go for yours. Don't settle. Get the man of your dreams and help a man. Also help a man get to his ideal state too, right? That is the underpinning Madonna-ness of this song that elevates it beyond just kind of like a boilerplate self-help song. It is so Madonna to not just be like, hey ladies, like let's love ourselves and like blah, blah, blah. No, it's like you literally need to turn around to this fucking loser and like help him figure out (laughs) how to express himself emotionally. I mean, she's toying with gender roles essentially in this way where she's going like, the issue here, ladies, is that men do not know how to express their emotions. So express yourself is both about a woman conveying that to a man and expressing herself to a man and then trying to teach a man to express himself. You've got to make him express how he feels is like the refrain. She's so smart. You know, this is the thing about her. She's so much smarter than your average pop star. There's so much going on here. And yet without ever losing its pop sensibility, in terms of the sly thing, what I find really interesting about this record in particular is the original version has so many clear allusions to that period of music. The canonical version of this song is the Shep Pettibone remix of it, which- is a really key moment. So we did an episode recently on Debbie Gibson, Tiffany, Taylor Dane, and Belinda Carlisle as a group, as a group of pop stars who were really big from like 1986 to 1989 and then like couldn't get out of the 80s essentially. Like were unable to get themselves out of the 80s in various ways. And to me, Like a Prayer is Madonna's last truly like 80s sounding album. Like the aesthetics of this album are very much rooted in state of the art 1980s sounds. And one of the ways that she moves her ass out of the 80s is by being willing to be on the vanguard of like ditching those aesthetics entirely. And as we're going to get to when she does that is with Shep Pettibone on Vogue the next year. That is when she ditches all of those canonical 80s sounds and starts adopting sounds of 90s house music essentially to help modernize and bring her into a new decade. But it's actually the Express Yourself remix with Shep Pettibone that is the first moment that she does that because that remix is incorporating a lot of the same production aesthetics that Vogue will eventually churn on one year later. Yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because when the album came out, you know, we all bought the album. I had it on cassette. And by the way, the album has such an interesting smell to it. I don't remember people remember right. that, but it was right. like, <laughs> it was doused in like patchouli. Yes, yeah, so, right. And I can smell it like right now. It was like a patchouli album. It was very strange. When that song came out, the video was just stunning, right? Directed by David Fincher early in his career. Talk about elevating the music video form by incorporating like these film directors into the mix. It was incredible. I mean, that video, aesthetically in terms of the color saturation in terms like it was first of all one of the most expensive videos if not the most expensive video ever made at that time yes but it was like referencing Metropolis by Fritz Lang the classic German expressionist movie of the 1920s the set design I mean all the things that are happening in the film with the dog collar and the melt like there's just it's yeah. sexual it's erotic it's sensual it's slinky I mean it was 
absolutely incredible. So I think part of the success of that song obviously had to do with the video. But, you know, she was really trying to marry a lot of different eras, right? From right. the 70s and 80s, bring it into the 90s. But when that song came out, the video sounded so much better than <laughs> the record. Right. We wanted to get that. And so I think you could only get it on like 7-inch because it was the Shep Pettibone mix that wasn't on the actual record or cassette. But we were hearing something powerful about that. And I think what it is is this kind of slinky groove that Express Yourself has. And, you know, part of it has to do with the synths that Shep Pettibone was using, which are very much 89 as opposed to like 87 or 88. They have a really bass-heavy aspect. But remember, this is also after Public Enemy has hit. This is after like hip-hop, like 88 Hip-hop has become incredibly popular, Rakim, all of that stuff. And so the kind of low end of hip-hop has become more important than ever. And so it's low end of hip-hop. Some say no to the album, the show, but much the sound. I made a year ago. It's house music, and she's starting to bring that into the music. And that was really the first time that we heard that. And I think that's, to me, why Express Yourself was superior to Like a Prayer, only because it just sounded way more state-of-the-art at the time. Right. And if we have to break it down, it's because of Shep's influence on the video version, right? The 7-inch that became used in the video. But it's an incredible song, and the horns, and melodically. And come on, girls, do you believe in love? (laughs) I mean, come on. That is, like, one of the best moments in pop music music history like that comes on that is the sirens call absolutely come on girls you believe in love cuz i got something to say about it and it goes something like this Hey everyone, are you liking this episode? Are you enjoying what you're hearing here? Well, I think you might need to join Pop Pantheon All Access. That is our new Patreon channel where for just five bucks a month at the icon tier, you'll get access to at least one bonus episode a month where we're talking about new music. This week, we did a whole new episode talking about new stuff from Lana Del Rey, from Megan Trainor, Paramore, Kim Petras, and so many more of your favorite artists. We recently published an in-depth review of SZA's SOS featuring Pop Pantheon fave Owen Myers, and other Pop Pantheon guests of choice have shown up on album deep dives like Rolling Stone's Britney Spanos on Taylor Swift's Reputation and Dunzo's Troy McKeady on Britney Spears' Blackout, and we have so many more of those episodes to come. And we're also providing access to our Discord channel, guest list for my party, Gorgeous Gorgeous, and so many other amazing perks. So head over to patreon.com slash poppantheon or click the link in the show notes of this episode or in our bios on social media and become an Icon Tier subscriber today. So what about the rest of this record? What's going on? Let's freestyle our way through the rest of these songs. Like, is there particular songs you want to pull out that feel like instructive here or that are sort of illustrating either the aesthetic or thematic ideas that we've been laying the groundwork for here on this album? Yeah, I mean, I Cherish is the third single. And to me, it's one of my favorites. I mean, it's this bright, peppy, sunshiny, doo-wop-y pop track. It's so much fun.
Other stuff on there, I mean, Oh Father was one of the singles as well. So that's the ballad kind of in the spirit of some of her earlier ballads like Live to Tell, I suppose. But the difference is it's actually about her father and her strained relationship with her father after her mother died and all of the stuff that she went through with him. I was reading an interview with her about the making of this record. It was like around when the album came out. And she said something about how her first three albums came from her child consciousness. And this was her first album that was arising from like the adult consciousness in her mind. Oh Father is like sung from the perspective of her child self in many ways. I think she went through this really interesting journey that many people go through with parental figures of feeling like immense anger and resentment towards him. And is at least attempting to posit on this song, I guess that she has come to some sort of healing with that, which is also really interesting in the context of this moment in Truth or Dare, when she has this really loaded moment where her father comes to the Blonde Ambition tour and kind of won't give it up to her. She is just at the apex of her success and power, and he kind of doesn't get it, and you can sense how much she wants his approval in that moment, and it's such an incredibly telling moment about her. It's one of the reasons that film is such an incredible revelatory piece, is because you really get what drives her. You really see like what she's doing. It's like she can have the adoration of the entire world. She can be the most powerful and fascinating entertainer and have everything she ever dreamed of, and yet really what she wants is for her dad to come to the show and be like, you did a great job. So this is a really interesting song in terms of just mythology building, I think, and that's one of the things that I think is a theme in this record and she has another song on here that is about the mother which is promise to try and is kind of singing to her child self like adult self singing to child self little girl never forget her eyes she says keep them alive inside i promise to try but it's not the same i.e the song is essentially about how she like has so little memory of this woman and clearly her death had such a profound effect on her life and was the driving force in many ways in her life little girl Never forget her eyes, keep them alive inside a promise to try, but it's not the same. They're sort of like sister songs that are there to sort of like help lay out the mythology of Madonna as, you know, essentially one of the most important American icons of all time. Here's the origin story, essentially, those songs. Yeah, I think that's really well put. And that's definitely the reason that they're on there. And it also helps make sense of those songs when they're used on tour, for instance. And, you know, Oh Father in the Blonde Ambition tour, that is one of those songs that then becomes about religion. So the idea of the father is not just her parental figure, but also about God. So she She's able to kind of bridge the worlds of like family and religion mm-hmm. continuously on this album. I do like some of the other album tracks, Till Death Do Us Part. Yes, that's the one about Sean Penn and the abuse she was suffering under him, actually, that deals with a lot of like domestic abuse kind of imagery in it. Yeah. 
you know, the album to me, it's definitely her strongest at that time to date, but it also has those moments where like Dear Jesse and Love Song, they just didn't come together, but the strong tracks are so strong yeah. that this, I think, will always be remembered as one of her greatest records and certainly one of the great records of that era. And she was able to achieve what it needed to do for her narrative so effectively that it's not really about the individual songs per se. It's about the fact that it did what it had to do in terms of like advancing her career forward. So at this point, Madonna is the biggest pop act on planet Earth. She then comes back, talk about an imperial phase, She's putting the soundtrack together for Dick Tracy, the movie she's making with then-boyfriend Warren Beatty, and she releases what I believe to be, perhaps if I had to pick one of her signature songs, I still think I might pick this one, the song Vogue. So let's talk about Vogue for a second and what's going on there and why this record stands today perhaps as her signature record and is such an important moment for her coming out of the 1980s and into the 1990s. Let's start sonically on Vogue. What is it about? What does it sound like? So Vogue is a song that she co-produced and co-wrote with Shep Pettibone, who we talked about before, legendary remixer and producer, worked with everyone from Arthur Baker onwards. And basically I would describe Vogue as a kind of house music inspired dance pop anthem. And the point of the anthem is to pay tribute to underground black and Latino gay dancers who are part of this phenomenon of the time that's still exists today called voguing this dance music that's specific to those subcultural communities so the song you know is it again one of those songs you can read in many different ways it's a tribute to that style of dancing was also documented in the film Paris is Burning, which is quite famous. Is that how she discovered it? No, I think she discovered it because she's a very curious person. Sure. And she was going to the downtown clubs in New York, which is where she got her start. And she was going to the Sound Factory Bar, which is where I used to go all the time mm. and, and mm. have a, a lot of fun. And you could always see people voguing at the Sound Factory Bar. And I think she saw dancers there and she was like, I want to do something related to this and I want to capture this and make a song about it. At least that's the story that we're given. Right. But, you know, in her mind, she saw an opportunity not only to take something subcultural and turn it into something mainstream, which is her MO, 100%, mm-hmm. but she also saw an opportunity to use the self-affectation of voguing, the idea that you, as someone who is highly marginalized and disenfranchised as a black or brown queer person, you are basically self-fashioning and you become a celebrity in your own narrative. saw the idea of that sort of self-transformation and said, I can write an inspirational, here we are with the inspirational pop anthems again, I can write an inspirational anthem that will not only capture the sound of house music that had become incredibly popular at the time, and again, house music comes out of the history of black and brown, gay and trans communities, Chicago, New York, some of the major centers, and it's a music that comes out of hip-hop music, but is a kind of machine-based rhythm, but funky, and often these sort of inspirational lyrics 
over top of those rhythms that are kind of brought to you by way of disco, which House builds on as well. So she said, let me take that element and let me make a pop anthem that has a house beat or house rhythm to it. And there's no question that if you just look at the track itself, it very much sounds of a piece of other house music anthems of that time and of that era. This is an era in which the merger of house music and pop music was happening, and that was definitely the case with Vogue as well. But they scaffold, on top of all of that house-influenced pop, they scaffold this gorgeous melody, right? Right. And it's so compelling on so many levels, not only because of that prismic lyric that you can read in different ways and the celebration of the subcultural identity, but also it really is an anthem that people can just take to heart and everyone can feel like their best selves. They're living their best selves through this song. That's really what it ultimately, I think, is about. It's about that and I think also about one of Madonna's enduring themes, which is dance and the dance floor and the nightlife as salvation, which is something she has returned to over and over again from everybody dance and sing right there at the beginning. Madonna has often returned to this idea that at the end of the day, the way you find yourself and the way that you save yourself is through dancing and through finding the dance floor. And I think this song is perhaps the ultimate iteration of those things. And I continue to be struck so much by something that I think is a bit of a stickier narrative with this, which is that a lot of people say that this is the first mainstream hit house song. I'm sure that you wouldn't characterize it necessarily that way, but I think people see this as a big bang moment for house music becoming chart topping billboard hot 100 topping music and that's such a intriguing thing to have occurred through this white female celebrity who is both in the music video and in the song celebrating the people that she's drawing from i mean she literally cast a lot of people that she had seen doing these dances originally and that had inspired the song as her dancers brought them on tour they're in the music video yet it feels like somehow she is the person that is like bringing this to the mainstream in a way that feels a little bit awkward. How do you view all of that? Well, I mean, I think it's true. I mean, I think that, as I mentioned, she'd gone to Sound Factory Bar and she had seen, you know, Jose Extravaganza and Luis Extravaganza from the House of Extravaganza, from the ball community. She'd seen them dancing. She's like, come in my video and let's bring other people. They cast actual dancers from the community. So that's part of the authenticity of what you see in that incredible video directed by oh, David Fincher. Which- that fucking video. It's ridiculous. It was so beautiful. The outfits, the Gautier bra and the sheer thing she's wearing at the beginning, that sheer turtleneck. I mean, everything about it is just... You know, as the ones once said, it was absolutely flawless. Flawless. (laughs) No stone left unturned in it and it was incredible. And again, it's one of those things where you need to see the video as well as listen to the song because they go hand in hand in so many ways. So what was so powerful about it was, yeah, she was singing lyrics like, you can do it, let your body move to the music. So this idea that you could find freedom through the music itself and this is what she was seeing these black and brown queer dancers doing in the context of voguing and she was trying to I think universalize that message but I think part of the issue with that song there's no question and this was an issue even then right 
first of all, on one hand, she's always had a proximity to LGBTQ communities and to figures in the community. And like all great pop and rock stars do, she helped bring, you know, these fringe communities, marginalized communities into the center of culture and gave them a certain kind of cultural capital. I mean, you could argue that Elvis did that in the 1950s with black communities in the way in which black music had largely been marginalized as independent R&B until it came to the center and then it was rebranded as rock and roll. Mm -hmm. She was doing something similar, I think, also with queer communities. And she was openly supporting LGBTQ communities, even just by hiring these dancers and putting them so prominently in her video and letting them be themselves and be fabulous and femme and contort themselves. Like She was doing all of this during an incredibly conservative time of Reagan and AIDS. And I mean, I think it's hard for young people to imagine, think about the context and how vilified people were who were living with HIV at the time. It was really a terrible, polarizing time to live in America. So she's doing all this and it's powerful. On the other hand, she's presenting herself as a kind of mother figure to these black and brown dancers. She does that certainly in the Truth or Dare documentary, but also even just in her placement in relationship to the dancers. She's not, you know, an ally who's sitting in the back listening. (laughs) She is right up front. Never, never that. Never that. But she's leading, you know, the mainstreaming of Vogue and she's in a prominent position to do so. And the real narrative here is that she offered these dancers an opportunity to work with her and to be part of the video, the tour, and the publicity around all of that. But then when it was done, she was done. did not continue to work with most of them. She was done with them. So she discarded them like a candy wrapper. And you can argue, and it has been argued, even at the time by a black feminist, womanist writer like Bell Hooks, who wrote a piece called Madonna, Plantation, Mistress, or Soul Sister. I mean, what a title. <laughs> but that her relationship to black culture to queer culture and so on as a white woman is largely extractive right it's basically about taking from these communities while also amplifying their voices elevating them kind of supposedly raising the bar on the music or the art that she's getting from them but she's aligning herself with those subcultures grabbing their cachet in many ways although doing it very skillfully and in a way that makes sense for her, but then ultimately just sort of discarding those subcultures. So she's really like a musical tourist, right, working through these subcultures with no real professed commitment to them. And that's the difference between, you could say, like a tourist and a cosmopolitan person who actually has a certain kind of competence in the cultures that they borrow from. She's just sort of like walking through it. And if she's doing voguing today, you know she's not going to be doing voguing in three years. If she's singing about La Isla Bonita in True Blue, we know that she's not really... (laughs) an expert in, you know, (laughs) Latin American or Caribbean culture. Like, and, and, you know, the problem is it just, it reinforces or reaffirms this whole kind of colonialist mentality where what white people go in and do is they capture and maybe even kill, but capture and then exploit. And then when they're done, they just sort of leave it behind. And what you have is a culture that's left in tatters or under development when you're done with it. And so in so many ways, she's mirroring this kind of culture of exploitation and appropriation and it's largely extractive in a way that you could argue would be different for some white artists let's say Tina Marie in the 1970s who worked with Rick James was on Motown and is considered one of the greatest singers in R&B music within this incredible voice but also amazing multi-instrumentalist skills and ability to songwrite and produce and everything else and people actually thought Tina Marie was black because of her I did I did for my entire childhood actually a lot of people did I don't think anyone thought Madonna was black no (laughs) and that's important she's actually hyper white in certain Mm -hmm. kinds of ways right Mm -hmm. blonde ambition I remember I had this poster of her on my wall blonde ambition which I 
love, but it's so blonde. It was so white. And like she sort of reveled in that and reveled in the ability to be hyper white, even though she's ethnic as well, of course, but to be hyper white and yet to extract from these communities as part of the energy and the substance of what she did. And that's deeply, deeply problematic, right? That idea of extraction, because it's hard to argue that she necessarily gave back to R&B, let's say, or to gospel, let's say, like a prayer. Is she giving back to the gospel tradition and elevating it in any way? No. And so that, I think, becomes the challenge. It's unfortunately reaffirming a kind of asymmetrical power relationship in which white people extract from people of color or from other marginalized communities and straight people do the same and then don't give back necessarily or support those communities. And I think now we're at a time in which the conversation around those things is so much more nuanced in ways around allyship and accomplices and so on. And I think some people argued, like Bell Hooks at the time, that Madonna was just not a good ally, frankly, that she was just extracting. And I think that's borne out. Right. Everything you said is just exactly what makes this record perhaps the greatest distillation of everything we could ever say about Madonna. Because on the one hand, you have just an absolutely glistening, perfect pop record, right? Like, I mean, just one of the best things she ever did. So fucking just on a pure musical pop song level. There's very few songs in pop history that are as good as this one. It's just so fucking good. And as we were mentioning earlier, you have a great distillation of her intuitive powers, right? Like the way that she knew that she had to basically leave the aesthetics of the 1980s behind and find a way to modernize herself in this particular way was so genius and speaks to me so much to her ability to have this long career. How she's been able to do that is so much rooted in her ability to understand when that needs to happen and how exactly to do that. And the way she did that through understanding the power that house music was about to have in popular culture in general. And also, I mean, all the way down to the way that voguing modernized her choreography. I mean, she's leaving behind these twitchy Paul Abdul-esque dance aesthetics. And the way she moved and looked in that video was entirely different than she had been before. Incredibly important risk and incredibly important step in why she was able to unlock more years of success in her career in a way that a Debbie Gibson or a Cindy Lauper or any of them weren't able to do. So that's all there. And yet at the same time, I'm so struck hearing you talk about what I think is one of the most powerful moments in Truth or Dare, the documentary that comes out in 1991. And we did an episode that touched on this recently where we talked about pop docs, but essentially is following her through the mega successful Blonde Ambition tour, which is following up Vogue in Like a Prayer and is seen, I think, to this day as perhaps the seminal pop star tour of all time. And the thing that always moves me so much about the film is this moment at the end where they're on the last date of the tour and she has as you said established herself as this like den mother to all of these largely black and queer dancers and singers that she's brought on the tour with her and they've all formed what is kind of this heartwarming little familial unit through the majority of the movie and at the end they're performing the finale of the Blonde Ambition Tour Keep It Together which is a note to family and they cut back and forth to her basically like in bed with and sort of saying goodbye to all of these dancers and you get such a sense through the film of why they are so drawn to her, of why she is such a force of nature and everything about her just makes you want to be near to her and like that you just want to be standing in the shadow of her massive light that is like just blaring at this particular moment. But there's this really intense and powerful feeling that everyone around her would stay with her forever, but she will never see any of them again. And she will just be on to the next thing in exactly the way that you were just sort of laying out. Together, together forever and ever. 
And to me, that is such a sad reflection on the nature of massive celebrity in many ways. I mean, the idea of like, she can never really be close to anyone. No one can ever really be her friend. And also the ruthlessness with which she pursued her musical career and endeavors. I mean, everything was ultimately in the service of like how to continue to keep this project rolling forward and her success to be the center of all of her decision-making at this point. So, so much about this moment and this video illustrates what makes Madonna such a compelling figure, but also what makes her so controversial. Perhaps maybe not even in the way that she intends it, because a lot of her controversy emerges from ways that she's wielding that controversy. But this particular angle on it, the way that she sort of pillages is not the kind of controversy that she is intending to put across, but is some of the more interesting elements of controversy that lay beneath the surface here. But the other thing I, I would just say about it is that there's a classic moment in Vogue where there's the, a rap section, right, where, where she's kind of just like rapping and she's talking about the old Hollywood and she's naming the laundry list of all of these names of like Greta Garbo and Joe DiMaggio and Marlon Brando and Grace Kelly and everybody can recite all of that now because it's so iconic and classic. But it's really like implicitly sort of white supremacist because here yeah. you are talking about the glorious beauty of fashion and style and you have all these black and brown dancers in your video and you can't mention a single person of color at all. It's crazy. That was crazy at the time. It was criticized at the time because it really felt like an imposition in a lot of ways. And it was like, well, how, why would you not at least broaden your perspective to be able to accommodate other people into your vision of what beauty and transcendence mm, are? It's revealing inadvertently in a sense. Absolutely. But it isn't until Beyonce Right. And the Break My Soul, the Queens remix, which came out this year, where Madonna is invited to come on that track. And then the remix incorporates some of the musical aesthetics of Vogue. And then they just rewrite that rap completely. And Madonna contributes as well. Right. And they're paying tribute to all of these classic black female artists from Aretha to Grace Jones to Solange to Jill Scott. Tierra Whack. Yeah. <laughs> It's like a rewriting, a revisionist rewriting of the history, which is important, right? And, you know, I think that's a moment in which Beyonce is coming to kind of reclaim the beauty of the blackness and the brownness that was already there in vogue that just was suppressed because of Madonna's own need to be in the center. Right. <laughs> but it's, it's worth saying, though, you know, despite the critique we can make of Vogue, it really was a peerless song of its time. And it was oh, something that uh, people of all so colors, good. all genders, all sides, everybody loved it. Everybody saw themselves in it, regardless of the limitations of the lyric or whatever. And I think Beyonce is one of those people. And I think her inviting Madonna to be on that track is a celebration of what Madonna did to open up space for people like Beyonce mm -hmm. herself. So I don't think it's really black or white, ironically, even though the video is. <laughs> it's actually more nuanced in some ways. But nonetheless, I think it's important to know that there was this critique and there still is this critique of that original song that's important to bring to the surface. It's just mystical. It's like where pop music transcends into something like bigger than the sum of its parts. It's just 
just an absolutely stunning piece of pop music. All right, so I think this is kind of where things get a little bit interesting too, because we've been talking about Madonna as this imperial creature of instinct in the sense that from basically her emergence in 1983 through Vogue, she is on perhaps one of the most untouchable runs in pop star history. Every single thing she does is increasingly successful and as we mentioned, increasingly interesting and intriguing in terms of its scope and multi-layered in terms of its artistry, right? Like this is why people still look back at her and maybe particularly at this particular era as the blueprint for like how a pop star career should go because it's essentially like every single thing works as a narrative construct that's building, 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 building towards like an seemingly endless layers of apex, right? But this is where in the early 90s, and I'm curious how you think about how she conceives of her next moves, things get a little bit tricky for her for the first time. This is the moment where I don't want to say like her ego was so out of control, but maybe that is perhaps an interesting way to think about it because Imagine how you might feel if every single decision you had ever made to this point was rewarded on the most grand scale possible, right? You'd probably be like, baby, there's nothing I could do that people wouldn't be into, right? Like there's nothing I could do here that would alienate people at the end of the day. And yet... Perhaps this is a moment where that ego takes its first beating. So Madonna comes off of Like a Prayer, Vogue, the Blonde Ambition Tour, Truth or Dare, as we said, as the biggest pop star in the world or one of a very small handful of the biggest pop stars and biggest pop cultural figures of the world, defined the 80s. When we think about the 1980s, if you look it up in the dictionary, her face is next to the definition of the 1980s. And she sets about conceiving of making her fifth album. The other thing to point out here is that Madonna has also had great success using sexuality and expressions of her sexuality to her benefit, both as controversy, as intrigue, whatever it is. So she conceives of making this fifth record, essentially, which is called Erotica, and is perhaps her grandest and most overt and callous and garish exploration of that to date. How do you think she's thinking about erotica. Do you think the idea here is that this is going to be yet another commercial peak for her? Or do you think that the idea here is more about an artistic expansion of who she can be as a pop star? What do you think her goals and ambitions are with this fifth record coming off of such a huge era preceding it? Well, I think there's something that we got to touch on even before Erotica, which is the Immaculate Collection. Right. Which is her greatest hits album that's released in 1990. And the reason I bring that up is because she's at an inflection point where she's actually kind of also looking back. Right. At the past decade. Like she gets that that's a contained period of some sort. It's a contained period. 1990 was a year that we're like, oh, thank God we're done with the 80s. We're moving on to something else, hopefully. (laughs) The 80s was a mess. (laughs) So, you know, people were looking at it that way and they were like, she's looking back and thinking, okay, look at the influence that I've had in this decade and let me celebrate it. And I mean, that Immaculate Collection, everybody had it. Even if we owned all the Madonna albums, which we did, like we had to buy that as well. Also, what a great title for a greatest hits package. I mean, come on, has there ever been a better title? That's so good. The Immaculate Collection, come on. It was amazing. And then like Shep Pettibone had like reworked some of the tracks, so it just sounded better than ever. Right. But I think beyond just sort of looking back and summarizing that decade, because, you know, at that point she was like on every list as like the most important artist of the decade, the most important artist in pop culture. She's also thinking, how do I move the needle? How do I continue? 
continue to move the needle given how far I've already moved the needle. And so what's interesting is on Immaculate Collection, she has these additional songs, these two new songs, Rescue Me and then Justify My Love. And Justify My Love represents a totally different sound for Madonna. Yes. In so many ways. It's her working with Lenny Kravitz. And it's this really unusual song for Madonna, (laughs) right? In which, first of all, she's not even like singing per se as much as she is just whispering through a number of erotic lyrics, you know, about a whole bunch of things related to sex and sexual desire. You put this in me. So now what? So now what? Wanting. Needing. Waiting. For you to justify my love. But the track itself is a hip-hop sample. It's a hip-hop beat, basically, and it's her doing this slinky, sexual, breathy meditation on sexual desire. But it's all about that video, that really amazing video, which I think it's Jean-Baptiste Mondino directed it. And it's like black and white, and she's walking down this hallway, and all of these strange, unusual, elusive characters show up, and there's like people wearing BDSM outfits and leather, and she's rolling around in this bed and underwear and lace. It was a shocking video, and MTV deemed it like too explicit to play. Now, in the age of WAP and Cardi B, and all, <laughs> it, would, it would not, it wouldn't even be an issue. People wouldn't blink an eye. But then it was really shocking, and it raised all of these debates about censorship and what could be shown and what couldn't be shown. And I think that was a really important moment for her to figure out what she was going to do next, because she either could have said, "I'm not going to do anything like that, and I'm going to do something that's more universally accessible, right? That still engages controversy, but is way more like like a prayer." But I think that opens the door for erotica then right because I think what she's trying to do is as I said push that needle forward and I think she thinks the way that she's going to do that is twofold one is to progress her music right so that she's actually now creating these pop melodies over deep house beats so it's not even just sort of like any house music here and not even always a retro house but the house music that was incredibly popular at the time to work with Shep Pettibone again I think also Andre Betts is one of the contributors to the album and then to make an album that is about sexuality itself and obviously she's an emblem of sexuality and part of the thing that she's always done in her career is to open up this space around what is considered permissible in sexuality and specifically for women and specifically for white women in the context of pop culture sexuality she after Marilyn Monroe and after others has opened up that space but here she's doing something even further which is why I say she's pushing the needle she's interested in opening up space in which we can think about what perversity means so now it's not just like a black Jesus in the like a prayer video as the source of the controversy but it's kink it's taboo it's BDSM it's fetish it's like let's really push the needle in terms of what constitutes perversity and this is not just her by the way it's happening culturally so you think about the National Endowment for the Arts and the trouble that it got into in the late 80s and early 90s funding work by cultural adventurous people like Karen Finley and others uh, there was all these debates, senators like Jesse Helms, they wanted to defund the National Endowment for the Arts because they felt that the American government shouldn't be supporting visual artists and other kinds of artists who are making explicitly sexual material or queer material or anything else. And so this is all happening around the same time in the early 90s. And Madonna is one of these pop culture figures who's absorbing the landscape and then resynthesizing it back out to us. And so she, I think, decides she's going to make an album that's literally pushing the needle on what 
constitutes perversity in an age in which there's incredible conservatism around issues of sexual desire. And so that's what you get with erotica. Right. I mean, what's so interesting about the way that she addresses that on this record, and I think it kind of goes back to something I was saying earlier about the way that Madonna is able to charge narratives about the work that she's doing that are maybe only like semi-present in the music. I mean, obviously this record works as some sort of concept album about sex, right? But really when you dig into this music, actually a lot of it is about romance. And that's one of the more interesting parts of this album to me is that it's pegged as this combative sexual thing that she had been known for and probably the apex of maybe where she quote unquote went too far with that, whatever you want to say about that. But at the end of the day, that's a lot about the narrative, the visuals. Obviously there's some songs on here that feel like they're pushing the needle on sexuality. There's a song like where life begins about her getting eaten out, whatever. There are songs on here that do push those ideas and of course the visuals and the sex book really solidify the concept of that. And clearly she was trying to sell that as the narrative of what this album is about. But in reality, underneath it all, you actually have like a lot more of like a nuanced project, I feel. Because if this was just a record about her being like, here's BDSM for 20 songs or whatever, like this would be a way less compelling piece of art. But in reality, it contains some of her most genuinely like romantic songs and some of her most moving songs. And I think I think there's more emotional complexity to what's going on on this record than like the way that it was characterized by her at the time. And it's one of those moments where I think perhaps the scaffolding that she put up around the record actually didn't serve it. And a lot of times in her prior work, she was able to construct this elaborate scaffolding around maybe some songs that were pretty simple at the end of the day, but she made them have a lot of deeper meaning because of everything that she put up around it. Whereas I think some of the scaffolding that she put up around this album actually presented an oversimplified version of what is perhaps her most like cohesive artistic statement to date and one of her most dynamic, vulnerable, revelatory pieces of work to the state. I totally agree. And I would agree with you. It's one of her best records. And there's so much subtlety on it, so much nuance, just the mixture of different styles from, as I mentioned, Deep House to New Jack Swing to R&B. Deeper and Deeper is one of my favorite tracks of all time. Deeper and Deeper is so <laughs> fucking good. Deeper and Deeper goes in my potential top five Madonna songs of all time. I think I agree with you. What a berserk song. Somehow like Philly house and disco and also camp and bizarre and like dissonant and weird. This is a song that does embody the sort of invitation into the underworld. Whenever I listen to this song, I'm like allured by it and afraid of it. Like there's something almost scary about it in a weird way. Like it feels almost like you're spiraling into Alice in Wonderland or something like that when you listen to this record. I totally agree. And you know, to me, it feels like a little bit of a New York record. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And I think it's because she's working with Shep on it. They did demos in his apartment. But I do think you're right. I think she got caught up in the PR 
star around the album and the thing that she gave people journalists and critics and whoever else to talk about was the fact that she had stepped into this alter ego of Mistress Dita right that because the whole album is written from that perspective right. it was based on some German silent film star of the past doesn't it start with her saying like my name is Dita yes, and she's yes. doing this whole like S&M ode <laughs> yeah. It starts that way, and so that's what people thought that the album really was. And then, as you mentioned, Where Life Begins, the reference to oral sex. So that's how she presented it. That's what people took it as. And it belies the fact that there are these amazing songs on it, even something like Rain. Rain, her best ballad ever. It's amazing. You know, there's some really great stuff on it, but it got lost in this moment where she's pushing this permissiveness at a time in which I don't think people were ready for that, or they certainly weren't ready for it from her. And maybe all they wanted was just more feel-good, sunny, California-style yeah. <laughs> Madonna inspirational anthems. And I think that even the ways that she addresses sex on this album are more dynamic than the visuals and the sort of narrative around the album presented as. Like, okay, so you have a song like Erotica, you have these songs that are like the canonical like Madonna sex songs of this era. And by the way, I do want to point out that on Erotica, what does she say after Erotica? Romance. Like those are the dual themes here. And like, I think the romance element gets really subsumed. But there's a song called Bad Girl, which I've always been really fascinated about, which is essentially about the way that one might use sex addiction to escape pain. There's ways that she addresses sexuality that are so much different than the sort of like broad-based combative way that she had presented in the past. Like you still have songs like that. And there's a lot of songs about like sexual power dynamics. But she also comes about and deals with sex in ways that are so much more nuanced, more dynamic than that. This record is a really important moment for her as an artist. And perhaps maybe the commercial underperformance or backlash to it was needed because in a way the artist that we get here is more nuanced than any of the sort of like broad character strokes that she had painted herself in, even on A Like a Prayer, which is a very revelatory and personal album, but framed in such broad pop terms that it can sometimes feel like she's just occupying roles or occupying ideas of what revelation means. And I'm not saying that those songs aren't personal, but there's things here that are more sticky and nuanced and personal than sticky. <laughs> I mean that in both the senses of the word, that maybe was an important moment because Every record from this point on feels like a true artistic statement in an aesthetic sense in a way that maybe none of the previous records before it did. So there's something that happens here in an artistic sense that feels pivotal to the future of Madonna's records. And I don't think that we can escape this conversation if we're thinking about Madonna as the blueprint. Between this in 1992 and Janet in 1993, we have the perhaps most important blueprint that has been retread over and over and over and over and over again in its wake of moving into this more overtly sexual guise as a means of displaying female maturity in particular and like as a way of sort of deep 
deepening or expanding who you are as a woman pop star emerging from a more youthful presentation into something that's considered more mature or adult. And of course, there's different people that have executed it to varying degrees of success, but you can often see how people are in a Machiavellian way attempting to recreate this, not from like a embodied artistic standpoint, like something that came very intuitively to Madonna at this point that like really made sense in the trajectory of her career and same with Janet in, the, in this particular moment. You can just watch how pop stars that are less inspired sort of turn to this as a move and it can feel... Let's not name any names. But, um... <laughs> I'm not afraid, Jason. I'll name names. I don't have your reputation to uphold. <laughs> I'll just I'll just... just say Chloe Bailey comes to mind these days. I mean, I love her work. I just think it was a, it was a very fast change, right? Like It, was it a, is a move and there, it's rooted in reality, but for Madonna and for Janet in this period, it was intuitive. They weren't following a specific blueprint for making that churn. And I think that that's really interesting to think about the fact that, again, and I think this is what we should talk about now is I, what I'd like to ask you is what happens? Like, how is this all received? She puts this record out. She's coming off of a nonstop run of hits. And all of a sudden, it's like the entire narrative turns on her in a weird sense. Like, how does the public receive this record? And I think we should say in tandem with the book Sex that she puts out, which is basically a coffee table book that explores some of the sexual taboos that she's pointing at on the record. So, you know, erotica gets critical raves, but it's generally seen as a lukewarm Madonna record, right? It doesn't have the kinds of hits that her previous records has. So this is seen as a stumble. Certainly, she maintained popularity. It was definitely torpedoed by the sex book. So this came out in 1992, and the photography was mostly done by Stephen Mizell. You know, this is basically a book of her erotic photographs, and it was all done again as the character Mistress Dita. <laughs> and, you know, it included all of these figures and cameos in the book. Big Daddy Kane and yeah. Vanilla Ice. Vanilla Ice. Naomi Campbell, actors, all kinds of folks. And, you know, is extremely explicit. Mm-hmm. She was naked for most of the book. She shows everything you could possibly want to see. The people she invites for cameos in the book are also largely naked. And there's a lot of text that goes with it, of course, too. That's, you know, referring to all kinds of stuff about sexual desire and sexual liberation, anal sex, men having anal, like everything you could possibly imagine. It was really a book that was about pushing the boundaries of what was acceptable for a mainstream pop culture figure like her at the time. And on the backdrop of the AIDS crisis, which I think is an important element of it too. Absolutely, which she's always referencing and it's also an erotica, right? Like there's songs there that are memorials to her friends who've passed away from AIDS. But she's trying to do what Robert Mapplethorpe had done in the visual arts, right? She's trying to be like a wild child to be the bete noir of contemporary pop culture by releasing something that pushes the boundaries of kink and taboo so far in another direction that you know I think she really thought this would be something that would cause controversy, but people would gravitate to nonetheless. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Do you think that she had just done this so successfully in the past that she thought that this would be another imperial moment for her? Or do you think that she understood on some level that this was pushing the envelope even a step further than even she had in the past? I think she thought it was going to be a moment for her that would be very much of its time and that would be a boundary pusher in its time, but would be ultimately well-received even if it stoked controversy. Right. You know, it was a miscalculation, frankly. Mm. But 
But it's incredible because now I think people would look at that and say, really? In the age of Cardi B and Cupcake and everybody else? She opened up all of that space to do that. But I still think to this day, nobody has released a coffee table erotic book like that who's a pop no. music star. Like it never, nobody ever went that far again. No, but Rihanna touched on some of this stuff, I think, during like the peak of her early 2010s era, more via like Instagram, which would be the way that one would do it in that particular period. But she was doing things and showing things and showing her body in ways that I think were very indebted to this period to great success, which speaks to the doors that got knocked down in this era. I think one of the things that this era answers a question of that I think is imperative and very interesting is that who is Madonna if she isn't a massive cultural success? Like if she isn't spinning off hit after hit after hit after hit on a record, I think one of the things that's interesting about erotica and this era in retrospect is she remains fascinating and intriguing even without that going on, which is imperative, I think, to her continued longevity and the more intriguing and nuanced work that she does later on in her career, which is what I was putting a pin in earlier. Looking back on this era, and I know that this record now in retrospect, many people see as one of her strongest albums and something that was really misunderstood in its time. But unlike a lot of pop stars, especially pop stars whose identity churns around being the center, right? Like which Madonna certainly does. It's nice to see and speaks to what a fascinating artist she is outside of her commercial success that this album still is interesting and compelling and relevant and something that we still want to engage with in a way that witness never will be. You know what I mean? Like in the sense that even when she was stumbling her artistry on its own is something that's worthwhile. Immediately following Erotica, I sometimes think of like everything that happened between then and Ray of Light as her essentially trying to both react in the way that you'd expect her to, which would be to be like, fuck you. I'm going to keep doing me and defending everything that I've ever done and like whatever. And also perhaps the first time I sense a capitulation on her part in terms of trying to right the ship. Yeah, I mean, it is a capitulation in the sense that I think she goes on David Letterman's show where she, by the way, uses all this profanity and it was like one of the highest rated. Uh, <laughs> if you have not watched that, pause this podcast right now and go watch that interview. It is the one of the most bizarre, fun, weird, tense, awkward things I've ever seen in my entire life. Incredibly so. I mean, she hands him her panties. Like, there's all kinds of stuff going on in that. A lot of people would cave into the pressure and say, oh, all right. They'd go out and kiss him and get it over with. Yeah, well, I've never succumbed to peer pressure. Uh, good for you. That's what we love about you, my body. Yes. <laughs> What brings you? you are a sick. <laughs> I don't know why I get so much. You realize this is being broadcast, don't you? In that interview, she says, you know, like, I was misunderstood and I left it alone. Mm -hmm. Because I think she realizes the public is not where she is and they're not going to be where she is anytime soon. And I think she has such a feeling for the culture. You know, that's what makes her such an instinctive pop culture figure that she's tapped into the vibrations of how a culture is moving at any given point. And I think this is a little bit of a miscalculation, although I still think it's a great record. And I love the sex book in so many ways. But I think she just miscalculated. And I think what she's doing is sort of modulating what she does. So she's not that she's going to be less controversial, but she's going to modulate it so that it can be sort of more contained in a way that people are going to be able to read and find legible. And that's important because I think people ultimately couldn't read the sex book in a way that made sense with her earlier career. And she'd mm. just done like Dick Tracy a few years earlier. And how are you doing like sadomasochism in <laughs> the sex book? Like <laughs> people just couldn't square those things about her. Right. And so I think she realized that. And I think she knew she needed to go out and make an album that was also artistically powerful and meaningful 
meaningful, but could reach a larger public and wasn't going to get her canceled. I mean, we didn't use that language then, but that's essentially what was sort of happening in that post-sex book release moment. I mean, she was literally being canceled. Like, you couldn't play her music. People were, like, charging her with violation of obscenity laws and things like that. So that's not where you want to be as a pop culture artist, you know, for the most part. I think it's really telling, actually. This is a really fascinating little moment, 92, 93, 94, into bedtime stories, because it speaks to the fact that for all of her artistic prowess that I was just laying out, Madonna very much wants to be a centrist, central organizing pop figure. And that is very much at the core of what she is. And I think her identity is very wrapped around her intuition with culture. I got a sense watching that David Letterman interview that she was thrown. Like, I really got a sense that she didn't quite know who she was or what was going on without that going on. And like, with people not seeing her as the central organizing principle of popular music, I think that that was really difficult for her. And I really think that's borne out in a song like I'll Remember, which comes out in between erotica and bedtime stories and is a very tame chase down the middle ballad. A great song. I love I'll Remember, but a real sense of like, okay, like you can just see her like steering the ship in the other direction, like taking a hard pivot. And then in thinking about Bedtime Stories, which is her 1994 album that follows this up, it's a really interesting attempt. I mean, I view it this way. I don't know how you think about it, but I view it as this way of like to not apologize, but to apologize at the same time. It's this really interesting combination of those two things. It's an interesting record, but not my personal favorite. It's her lost record. Madonna is so defined by her confidence. You were talking about this at the beginning of this, like she knows what she's doing and what we're doing and what this project is about and blah, 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 blah. And this is a moment that is interesting, but also perhaps less of a powerful artistic statement because I think she's kind of lost in this moment. I loved Bedtime Stories. I mean, for me, the thing that I loved about it is like, it was unquestionably like her blackest album. Yes. <laughs> right, because she went way in the other direction with that. She's like, I'm going to make a black album. A black album and one of the only times in her career and leading up to this, it had been Niall Rogers, the only example of this in the past where she had turned overtly to already established success successful producers, another sense of capitulation that I just want to put out there. Like Madonna's career had always turned on her plucking people out of obscurity as collaborators. This is one of the only moments in her career, and I think it speaks to potentially where she felt she was commercially and what she needed, that she turned to a cadre of a very already established and popular producer. I just want to put that out there. I totally agree. And also, you know, the sound had changed so much, right? Even like what's on MTV between Like a Prayer, between the Dick Tracy record, folk, like the Erotica even, yeah. the sound had completely changed and hip-hop had come in in a major, major way. It had taken over in many ways as a musical priority in the U.S. certainly. So she was like, I gotta get that. And so she went after the people who would make that record for her. You also have to remember she had started her own record label, yeah. Maverick at that time. So she's even more entrepreneurial than she's ever been on her hustle to make a record that's gonna be commercially successful. So she goes and gets Dallas Austin who's done TLC and Joy and everybody else. Babyface, Dave Jam Hall, who's done Mary J. Blige and all kinds of other artists. Oh, 
and Nellie Hooper. So what I love about Bedtime Stories is that it brings together the American R&B scene of the early 1990s with the trip-hop British electronic sound and scene in a way that I don't think any other album does of that time. Mm. It's like a merger of Bjork and TLC or something. <laughs> it's a curious record. And, you know, it starts mm. with Secret, that single, and we didn't know what Secret is that she was holding. You know, it's like... I still don't think we do, actually. <laughs> It felt like the whole album had this kind of mystique to it and this mysteriousness, but I was digging it just because I thought some of the songs were just great, like Human Nature, which is also about, I'm not sorry. It's like, right. here's a qualified apology. I'm giving you this album because I'm sorry, but I'm also not sorry. I'm not your bitch. Don't hang your shit on me. Human Nature is the pièce de résistance of this record, no question about it. It is the record where she directly responds to the erotica backlash, and it is, to me, by far the best record on this album. It is that squelching Dr. Dre synthesizer, and it positions Madonna in a hip-hop context that, like, doesn't feel awkward. But when I think about this record, I think of it as transitional, because you talked about the connection between the sort of, like, trip-hop and European electronica aesthetics that are obviously about to become fully fleshed out and borne out on Ray of Light and Music and American Life. So she hasn't quite figured that out yet. We have glimpses, I think, in terms of like the persona that's presented on much of this record of the kind of earth mother, self-reflective, looking back spirituality kind of vibe that's going to come through on a lot of her future work. Like I think about the opening song, Survival, where she's sort of essentially going, here's my story. She starts dispensing the hard-won spiritual wisdom thing that becomes definitional to the next three albums, like on Secret when she says, until I learned to love myself, I was never ever loving anybody else. That's a very Ray of Light-ish kind of lyric. She's starting to like access the part of herself that is self-reflective and wondering about how she's been in the past and how she might be changing as she gets older, right? Which is like something that she fully blooms into like in this technical or extraordinary way on Ray of Light, but it's kind of only like slightly in the mix here, like not fully there yet. And I love the grooves and production of this record. I think you're so right about that. But I think her borrowing of these producers and these sounds, A, one of the first times that I felt like in in a mainstream sense, she was behind the curve. There's records on here that feel like they're in conversation with Janet's record a year earlier, like a lot of TLC, a lot of Mary. You feel like she is aping a style that has already been brought to the mainstream. This is one of the first times that I feel like that's really happening for her. And there's some awkward R&B and hip hop posing that's going on here that is weird feeling. You don't feel that way? Well, I mean, her whole career to me is extractive <laughs> and awkward. As far yeah, as but that's I think concerned. she's always pulled it off in an artistic sense. Like it's awkward beneath the surface perhaps, but I've never felt like I'm listening to this and like she's trying something that isn't quite working on an aesthetic level. I don't know. That's how I feel about this record more so than the past records. I mean, I loved it at the time. I think Take a Bow is one of her best yes. ballads ever to me. I think it's great, you know, working with Babyface. Take a bow, the night is over, this 
And I just think Bedtime Stories itself, that song with Bjork, like that is really ahead of its time in terms of creating this sort of electro R&B soundscape that so many people are still trying to get to today. So I loved it. I thought it was a great record. I, of course, still had the issues with her and her appropriation and all of those kinds of things, which was really turned up on this album. But par for the course with Madonna. It's a really good album. I'm not, I mean, Madonna is largely incapable of making, or at least was until, let's say, 2012, largely <laughs> incapable of making yeah. an album that wasn't at least like worth digging into and interesting in its own ways. I get a sense that she's not who she was on this record and she's not quite who she's about to become in this revelatory later part of her career, this unmatched resurgence or largely unmatched resurgence in this late stage of her career in her 40s of having this whole new level of artistry and relevance that like, you know, very few pop stars have been able to unlock in that particular moment in their careers. She's neither here nor there on this album to me. But it's so interesting because I always thought she's very much in her element in this album and Ray of Light to me as much as I love that album I also thought part of the reason that she gets the credit for coming back and being fully there is because she picks up a guitar and she's starting to play her own music and it's very much the kind of raucous thing of like it can't be as good if she's doing the R&B mm. and the hip hop and the such and such and such and that's how I always felt about it it was like oh I was good with her doing all of the R&B and hip hop and I wanted her to go, actually go deeper into some of that stuff which she comes back to with like Hard Candy yeah. and like you know <laughs> when she's working with Pharrell and Timbaland yeah. and Kanye and all, and all those people. Do you think that following this record, which you said was like a bigger success than Erotica, but not nearly on the level of like a Like a Prayer or a True Blue, for instance, what do you think culture was making of her at this particular moment? I mean, I know you said that this record went some ways in correcting the commercial trajectory that Erotica had kind of interrupted. But do you feel like at that point, I mean, she is 35 years old. As you said, music has changed so much. There's an entire new generation of pop figures that are dominating. We're in the swing of Mariah Carey and Whitney and actual black pop stars have come and taken center stage in many ways. Do you think she feels even in her continued success as a bit of a relic? Like, do you think people are perceiving that she might be on the wind down at this point? I don't think that was the case. I mean, I'm just thinking of how I thought of it at the time. I don't think that people felt that so much as she was the master of chameleonic reinvention right after Bowie. Like she could keep reinventing herself. And so I think people were thinking, how do you keep reinventing yourself so many years into your career and especially as music is changing because music in the 90s changed so seismically from the you know New Jack swing of Teddy Riley and Jodeci to the kind of laid back tempo of the music that Brandy was putting out and others and then it shifted into that like pre-Y2K Timbaland and Missy Elliott so it was like what are you going to be doing how are you going to establish yourself as a cutting edge figure who pushes the needle in this moment of incredible seismic change in popular music and so I think that was the concern more than anything else and I think she managed to do it like that's the crazy thing it's so crazy like she pulls it out of her hat with Ray of Light and it's like in a way that sounds like nothing else that anybody else is doing at the time and still feels of a piece with all of the sonic innovation that's happening in that pre-Y2K moment but is it unfair to say that she was not the centerpiece of pop music in the way that she had been in the 80s at this point she was kind of another successful pop star that was operating right now right no question yeah she wasn't hitting the same commercial height she didn't 
didn't have the same level of imperial status in pop music. Right. She was and would always be a legend, but she definitely was not able to crank out those number one hits and the number one albums in the same exact way. Right. So there was definitely a question of what what the future held for her. But by that time, you know, the average shelf life of a musical superstar. That's what I'm saying. Five years, right? Jason, the length of her success (laughs) belongs in the fucking Smithsonian Institute. And that's the thing that like is so enduringly fascinating about her. And that's why I just want to set up for people, I guess, as we move into this last installment of the series. Throughout it all and through all of the controversy and through all of like the weird appropriation, all the things, whatever, I have just such immense admiration for her tenacity and her desire and drive to keep it moving forward and to keep giving you something to chew on. At least in her peak phases, I just feel like the way that she allowed through popular music to create something that was always interesting and always expansive and always pushing things forward and always pushing who you thought she was forward. It's just fascinating looking at something like a Bedtime Stories and then again at a ray of light and like trying to square how is this the same person as the everybody girl? I don't know if there's another pop star I can think of, even Beyonce, who has expanded the scope of her artistry infinitely from No, No, No Part 1 through Lemonade and Renaissance. Obviously, like you're dealing with, you know, a much expanded scope. But like, I still can square those two pieces together in an easier way than I can with Madonna. Like the person that she was in this period and then moving forward, there's themes and stuff that we can draw on that connect them all together, but it's almost like hard to understand how it's all the same person in some weird way, aside from the ambition and the scope of what she was doing. The levels it went to is just so impressive to me, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I would say Bowie had the same quality. Right. Good point. That he kept changing over and over. And I think she drew a lot on that. Of course, you know, she came of age in the era of Andy Warhol and you know she knew him of course and drew a lot from his kind of philosophy of being in the world but you have to remember she was the emblem of postmodernism right right? this entire kind of way of being in the world in which the line between the real and the artificial was blurred that was one of the tenets of postmodernism and she more than I think anybody else she came to literally absorb the change in culture and the rise of this postmodernity that Warhol (laughs) ushered into the culture in the 1960s and she took it further in the 1980s and the constant in her career through all of those changes is that she's a chameleon yeah. who changes. That's the constant, that she will always change, she'll always evolve, always develop. And if anything, in this contemporary moment, the challenge is for her as she's grown older, how do you continue to evolve and change? But to her credit, she keeps doing it. It's just that the rule books have changed. She rewrote the rule book in the 80s and 90s and beyond, and now the rule book itself has changed around what's permissible and what's possible and so on. And right now we're in an era where we're asking people to be much more consequential about some of those changes, especially if the changes that you make having to do with yourself have an impact on other communities, mm-hmm. particularly more marginalized communities. And so she's a little bit out of step yeah. in this era right now. And Jason, this is, I guess, maybe a great thing for us to end on is like, no matter what, through the peak of her success, the music was always good. I mean, we can talk about all of the shit that people think about, the controversy, the images, the videos, all of the shit that she was doing that actually added to the story and added to the impact. But at the end of the day, this shit churned on a discography that is nearly unmatched in pop music. The music was always good. The music was always there. And that's the thing that I think is like what's been missing 
saying in the last run of albums is like at some point she lost the grip on that particular thing and without that the other shit gets annoying <laughs> like that's the thing it was like she was always annoying she was always like an attention whore she was always all these things that were like kind of annoying but at the end of the day you put on express yourself and like what are you gonna say perfect fucking song banger like a prayer deeper and deeper secret and human nature no matter what she was doing no matter how she misstepped whatever it's like the musical backbone was there through all of it and without that it all would have been nothing so i think that's the real missing piece of yes she's out of step and whatever but she's also like made some not good music and when you don't have that that's really where things start to fall apart i think and that's a problem i think for her at the current moment like how does she do that but uh, just to give her credit i'll also say that very few other artists maintain her level of high craftsmanship over so many decades yeah producing so much at such a high level with such attention to the craft of the songwriting i don't think she gets enough credit for the songwriting, right like as a songwriter just yes outside of the production themselves the songs themselves will live on and on and on because they're so well constructed and so thoughtful and she was so precise in the studio and even outside the studio about making those songs the best they could possibly be and that's an incredible legacy and if she never writes another great song it's totally okay agree so last question for you i know this has been a marathon what is an underrated song something we haven't touched on yet from these three albums or this period it could be a lucy whatever it is something we haven't touched on that we could send the show out on well i will say that vogue is this track that was included on i'm breathless yes from the dick tracy soundtrack and it didn't even belong in there they were just like where do we put it oh let's just put it on the dick tracy soundtrack (laughs) but the dick tracy soundtrack itself it's a collaboration with her and Stephen Sondheim. Totally awkward. Yes. Totally strange. Yes. She was working hard to get a kind of serious recognition through that album. It's her concept album. However, sooner or later from that album, <laughs> wins the Oscar for best song. Mm-hmm. People forget, I think, that that happened in her career. Yep. But I actually think that song deserves a little bit more attention in the sense that it's just a weird one-off for her that got this Oscar recognition, but it's part of this soundtrack that people don't see as part of her career at all. And I think she was giving it her all and she was stepping into a character fully and she wanted to fully inhabit that character. And there was something tacky about it, something ambitious about it, but something also pure and naive about it. And it defines to me Madonna in that period, like her being part of this huge Warner Brothers studio massive blockbuster attempt to try to make a mega hit with Warren Beatty. So I don't know. I just think that's one of those songs that I think if you want to understand Madonna in this period, you have to also understand that. because It's about her ambitions, about what she was going for, and it's about also her capacity and what she was able to do in this particular moment of imperial pop stardom. So let's go out on Sooner or Later. Jason, I could literally talk to you forever and ever. You are just incredible. <laughs> like I bow at your feet. Take a bow, as they say. Uh, <laughs> Thank you so, so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Always great to talk with you. Let's settle the matter. Baby, you're mine on a platter. I always get my all right so there you have it madonna part two we will be back next week to talk about ray of light music american life and confessions on a dance floor i want to say thank you so so much to the brilliant 
Jason King. My God, what an incredible guest. Thank you, Jason, so much for being on the show again. I want to say thank you to the iconic Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week and to Seth Kelly for his help editing this episode. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. And if you do it on Apple, you might be getting yourself a free Niche Legend dad hat. Come to Gorgeous Gorgeous this weekend. Link to buy tickets in the show notes of the episode and on social media. Follow us at Pop Pantheon Pod, me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. Join our Patreon, Pop Pantheon All Access, by going to patreon.com slash poppantheon or clicking the link in our show notes for bonus content, Discord, and so many more fun perks. PopPantheonPod.com has merch, Niche Legend Dad Hat, Mirror Superstar t-shirt available for purchase. And until next week, I hope you have a wonderful life. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye.